If you feel the current way, just call Mitchell Tall. Or in Patterson Lace, just call Mitchell Tall. Anywhere Bayside, just call Mitchell Tall. Buy a summer house, just call Mitchell Tall. Mitchell Tall. Real estate. Oh, yeah, little real estate. We want more. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening, and welcome back for another evening of Radio Architecture. We are broadcasting to you live from the Radio Karim studio on beautiful Bunurong country. I'm really excited to talk to my guest tonight, James Lang, an active transport engineer who specialises in active travel and has worked in the transport industry for over 20 years and is the national practice lead for cycle planning and design at Stantec. His work focuses on improving accessibility and placemaking within local communities, and he's a big champion for the healthy streets approach to achieving this. James is a trusted advisor to both local and state government clients and is a regular presenter at national conferences. In his free time, he is also a broadcaster on Radio Karim, running a regular music show called Twisted Melon, which is back on the airwaves tonight at 8.30pm for our listeners. And I am sure there will be lots of questions this evening, so please don't forget you can text us in the studio. The line is 0493-213-831. Have all your urban planning, active transport, walking, cycling questions ready for James tonight. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for the plug for my show later as well. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be lots of fun, yep. as, as it is every week. Well, James, my, my first question is always, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Um, that would have been my, I imagine it'd be my play school. I remember my play school back in Penrith in Cumbria in the Lake District, Northern England, where I'm from. And I remember being this old blue building. It feels like it was a wooden building. And I remember going in the gates and there'd be a little sandpit in the back garden. And um, I don't know why, but I feel like one of my earliest memories is actually trying to paint a Dalek from Doctor Who in that building. And I remember um, pulling the paintbrush away from the paper and I couldn't understand why I wasn't, like the, the gun thing that's on the front of the garlic, why I couldn't paint this 3D garlic as I saw it on the television, this garlic. So I'm pulling this, I'm painting, I'm pulling the, the brush away from the paper and I, my brain just wouldn't understand why why I couldn't paint a 3D garlic. You can now with um, a 3D pen. Yeah, yeah, now I can do it. But I just remember that, I just remember that, yeah, I must have been three years old and I just remember that building really, really well and just have a, there's something inside me that's got like some nostalgia for it. Um, which, yeah, I think that, that's probably the one. That's re- that's a really nice memory. And then painting, buildings, painting the urban realm, that's found its way into your work where accessibility in public is really important. And most people think of painting buildings as a mural, but sometimes we also paint sidewalks and pedestrian crossings. Do you have some thoughts on that? Is that is that actually a good thing? Um, if you'd asked me a year ago, I'd have been a huge advocate for painting crossings, like putting dots on crossings and tactical urbanism and all that kind of thing. And I've presented at conferences, I think, where I've shown examples and said it was brilliant. But then after reading some research in the UK um, a year or so ago, where there's actually a lot of people really, really struggle um, when you do this. People with um, like who might be prone to epilepsy or um, dementia, they really struggle with it. They get very confused with these kind of crossings and these kind of treatments. So there is a place for it. But you've got to be very, very careful and you've got to consider that. And, and like anything, you know, you need to be speaking to all the stakeholders, not the standard stakeholders, and getting a real cross-section of society to input into any designs you're doing to make sure what you're doing is inclusive. Um, I don't think there's any such thing as an inclusive design. There's always somebody that loses out a little bit, but you've got to do the best you can and speak to everybody and make the best informed decision. Absolutely. And also think about who's not in the room, who's, yeah. who's not being represented and 
whose safety or lived experience oh, is really important. Definitely. A great example of that is I often talk about um, I don't really like shared paths in an urban environment because, you know, they're not very good for walking or cycling, to be honest. And um, we look at counts and we get counts of people walking, people cycling, but no one's asking that elderly lady who lives at number 52 who doesn't leave the house why she's not leaving the house because she's worried because there's people cycling on the footpath outside her house. So, you know, that's having a lot of impacts on her mental health, her connection with society. So there's a lot of missing data. And I want to say data. I'm always going to say data, even though I should be saying data in Australia. Um, there's a lot of missing data you know, in everything we do. And it's, it's quite a difficult thing to capture. There's, there's a lot of stories that are left out of our city. And that's one of the biggest arguments for diversity in any profession, especially our line of work where you're a transport engineer, I'm an architect. We're very privileged to be crafting mm. the public realm. Um, and I think over the years there's many discussions about how, how, do you, how do you make sure enough people in the room sharing their voices and also knowing how to listen to others. So how are some of the ways that you've been able to motivate council clients or state government clients that you've, that you've worked with? Um, what have been some of your sort of success stories in, uh, in that way? Yeah, look, it's, it's probably been easier back in the UK than it has here, um, mainly because a lot of my work was in London and when Boris Johnson was a mayor of London, there was political will there to kind of, you know, make healthy streets was part of the, um, the mayor of London's framework and it was adopted by, you know, by the mayor of London there. So there was political will and the mayor would say, OK, we're now going to, you know, we're going to put 12 cycle routes in, into the city. Um, big cycle superhighways, as they were called at the time, which is a terrible name, but that's what we chose. And we went ahead and did it. And it, here, it, you know, all the councils have their own little borders. They've got their own councils. And there's not one person who's overseeing all that, who's making this call, saying, well, this is what we're doing across the city from Mulvan to, you know, Maribyrnong. This is what we do. We're putting this big corridor in. It just doesn't really work that way. Um, so the lack of political will there, and there's so much opposition at a local level, like um, Port Phillip and Glen Ira might want to do two completely different things on the same street. So where do you go? You know, nothing happens. You keep going around in circles. But as far as success stories go, um, I was involved in the pop-up bike lane program, and it was a mixed bag, what we got on the street, I'll be honest, but what we did on Heidelberg Road was, was pretty amazing, and we got buy-in from all the councils. And the approach there was it's a trial, so it's a live consultation, where a lot of my work um, historically might have been, you know, you do a design, you show it to a council, you show it to the community and say, what do you think in this? And straight away, they're on the back foot, the defensive, because they see change taking something away. But when you're kind of testing something, trialing something, and this is where the low traffic neighbourhoods in the UK have done a really good job, I think, um, it's a live consultation and you're getting feedback all the time and you're adjusting as you need to be. And we did that in Heidelberg Road. You know, we we put something in, we took out all the parking, etc., there was some parking that had to have had to come back, some loading that had to come back for the sake of the businesses. Um, so we, you know, we, we just did the design and reincorporated it all back in, and so that was that was a good success story. And hopefully that you know that, that shows some precedence because what I'm finding in Australia it's all about precedence. If you haven't got local precedence, you, you're not going to get anything done. So we're chipping away trying to get that precedence and making just making it harder for people to say no. Yeah, you need a really good example. I think car culture is, is so deep in now in the public consciousness in our society that people can't imagine otherwise. Yeah. Where, from what I'm aware, the data says that if you actually um, improve the urban realm in front of shops and if that means removing parking but you make it better, people stay longer and spend more money. Oh, 100%. I was chatting about this the other day. So I do – a lot of my work does involve asking should we be removing this parking and doing something better with it. But what I um, struggle with a little bit with, with advocates especially is – quite often people are too general and every, everything is site specific and I wouldn't say you've got to move parking everywhere where I used to live um, in Brighton East there was this little ice cream shop off North Road North Road's a really busy you know really busy road and there's a little ice cream shop and another shop and they had a few parking spaces outside but that was like one place where I'd said yeah they will really struggle if we remove this parking we didn't necessarily have the density around the shop it wasn't a really walkable kind of place so I would have said, no, we probably shouldn't remove the parking there. Oh, we can, but they are probably not going to make it. But you go somewhere like um, Church Street in Brighton, lovely street, you know, very fancy, loads of parking behind the shops. That could be an amazing place. And all it is, 
is a traffic sewer of cars going down to the roundabout, turning around, coming back up, going down, coming back up, trying to find a parking space, angled parking outside the shops. So you're just crawling along that street in your car. And it's just such a missed opportunity. And it's a very difficult thing to implement. And I, I understand the fear, of course. It's like, well, there's parking outside my shops. They're going to spend hundreds and put in the boot. They won't do that on a bike. They won't do that if they're walking. I'm trying to convince people the longer people stay in a place, the more they will spend, the more they will tell people about the place, the more other people will come, the better you're going to be. It's very difficult, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll win in the end, I think. Absolutely. That image of Church Street Brighton is also very visceral. People get frustrated and they honk the horn. Yeah. And that, that's not really what That's what a great we street. For. It's a great one. It's got the bones of a great street, but it's ruined. People wonder and, and hope for our Long Beach shopping strips um, around this local area. What what ideas come to mind for you? What what would you do if um, you could wave your oh, magic pencil over? It's a tricky one because if you look at, you know, how we assess streets using like movement and place framework, it's an appearing highway, it's a movement corridor, it's a strong movement corridor. But saying that, you know, the new freeway opened a couple of years ago, so that's a movement corridor. And then what's Station Street kind of in between? Because that's kind of, kind of a movement corridor as well. And then you've got the train line there. But for me, that that's a good example of the parking. There's quite a bit of parking behind there. And I think them shops would benefit enormously. And it doesn't have to be the whole strip, but getting some parklets in, extending that outdoor dining space, giving people more of a reason to stay, getting some landscaping in them spaces as well, because you need a little bit of a green wall there, I think. I mean, you, you can't. we've got the train line there. We can't do anything about that. Um, unfortunately, in my opinion, you know, there was a decision made for the, the trench for the level crossing there, but everybody lives the other side of that trench. So the permeability is appalling. It's a wall. Um, yeah. yeah. So th- this morning I went to Woolworths at 7.30 and I went up the station, I came up the other side and I jumped over the fence as I often do. Um, and then just walked across and went to Woolworths. For our listeners, permeability basically means how easily can you cross from one side to another, how easily can you move or travel through something. It's just the the density and in, in this context, the railway line creates a barrier and that yeah. that fencing along uh, Chelsea that really quite upsets the community, yeah, um, it's, uh, particularly bad in that zone. It's just where the crossings are, isn't it? And I actually understand why why, why they're where they are. They The spacing of them is correct but it's almost one like we could have had one less and put one where people really want to cross the road. Um, but then the ice cream guy's probably happy because he's got a crossing right outside his shop. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, I mean, look, you, it'd be very difficult to declassify that road, I feel, um, because it is a it is part of the Nepean Highway. Um, so I think it's really looking at kind of just trying to extend the space, remove some parking, get some parklets in, that kind of thing. But one thing, um, I actually used that shopping strip at Chelsea in a healthy street presentation that I often do because it's actually got the bones of a healthy street. And without jumping ahead, healthy streets is really, you know, it's a framework for you know, trying to improve placemaking and putting public health at the forefront of all planning and design decisions. But there's a lot of metrics that go into it and it's stuff like having shelter, having water bubblers, having places to, you know, sit, stop and rest. Um, you know, bike parking, that kind of thing, having fairly wide footpaths. And that street actually has all that. It has a lot of good stuff about it, but it's just tired and it's noisy. And there's a lot of noise pollution, kind of in traffic pollution there. So trying to distance that separation where people are spending time to where the cars are going past would be be great. But I think it has to start with the the parking lane for me. It's all certainly possible. We've got those bones there. Yeah, no, definitely. It's all it's all not that not that far away, um, but that idea of removing parking is quite similar to what my first guest on this show, Dr. Damien Williams, brought as a precedent in Lancaster, California. Um, their condition was, of course, different. They didn't have the railway line kind yeah. of boxing them in, um, but they took five lanes down to, to down to two, and with this central promenade. Um, but it's good to have th- these sorts of ambitions and these sorts of visions uh, for, for our public realm. And there's so much data and research. So I'm wondering, can you add a bit more on what's the economic benefit to a, to a city, to a local co- council, to a local government area to have um, more active streets? And Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's different ways of attacking it. I mean, the first thing is, I mean, we mentioned before, place, and you said yourself, you know, people 
more people, more, more people spending time, more people spending money. I mean, that's, there's, there's a natural economic benefit there. Or you can go longer term where you're, you're prioritizing walking, cycling and getting more people active. Um, the health benefits to them, but onto the health service. Like there was some, some studies done. If you look at the, the World Health Organization, you're talking billions in pretty much all the countries. If you can improve people walking and cycling, you know, get more people, the lack of um, the the people getting diabetes, heart disease, etc. when they're older, saves the, the health service an absolute fortune. And I have never heard anyone talk about that in a kind of business case. On the, the saving on the, on the tax dollar. It's unbelievable. It's huge. You know, it's billions. And yes, it's in the future, but it's just setting you up for, you know, for generations to come. So that side alone is worth doing it. Um, and there's always the thing with the, you know, the traders, etc., and how much benefit. And people really, really struggle to, to see you can't, if you remove parking that it will lead to um you know their business doing quite well but there is a lot of evidence behind it and there's been quite a few surveys done in melbourne where people always overestimate how many people come by car and how much people spend by car um, but you, again everything's site specific you know i mean a bridal shop's not probably not going to do great if you get rid of all your car parking um dry cleaners maybe not so much um you, you've got to try and look at these things collectively and then try and do what you can to help the businesses that you know really do need it, and that includes loading as well. So it's not it's not just a blanket remove all, but yeah, there's there's economical economical benefits to providing just a better place, people spending more time, people enjoying the space, and the long term benefits as well. It's going to have a huge you know financial savings and your on the point, tax dollar. Absolutely, your point about it being site specific is really really critical, especially in the suburbs where the housing stock often gets built and painted with this broad brush and communities get built with a broad brush and people also will get lumped into one basket that they think they're not motivated. But this part of town, city of Kingston, has some incredibly motivated, engaged, educated and involved members of the community as well. And so I wonder about... Why do, why is it so hard sometimes for people, do you think, to visualise or, I mean, not everyone has a visual thought, but to really I- imagine change? Why do you think change can be difficult? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess you've been doing something for so long. The thought of, it, it's that fear of something being taken away, whether you're going to miss it or not. And I think a kind of good example would be a, a modal filter like where you basically, you know, you might close the road, but you still allow people to cycle and, and walk through, but it might be closed to cars. Now, there are thousands of these around that have been there for years and years, cul-de-sacs with little cut-throughs through, but you try and implement something like that now and all hell breaks loose and people are talking about my, my accessibility, um, I can't get to my house anymore, which is never true. I mean, it might take, you know, another 45 seconds, another minute, that kind of thing. But the result is they live on a super quiet street and the kids can play cricket in the street again and, you know, they can walk and cycle to school and people are coming out the houses, they're living in the front rather than the back garden, the communities are reconnecting, all that kind of stuff, all these benefits. Can have street parties. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and it's easy. Um, I'm actually trying to get one of these things in at the moment, um, a school street. I won't say exactly where because I haven't been to the council yet, but I'm getting my ducks in order to say there's a street here, there's a school here. We don't need to drive during pick-up and drop-off times. Let's actually close this street, let's get some chalk on the ground and some hula hoops get a coffee caravan down there let's make an event of it and then um, maybe we can look to make it into a park in the future but let's trial it and test it so the, the, there's always this fear of change but trialing and testing is is definitely the way to go and what i was just talking about there modal filters so the easiest way to build a walking and cycling network in my opinion just cut the head off the snake just remove the traffic um, because we're all everyone's rat running now i rat run um, and you know google maps etc is helping me rat run but if we're serious about, you know, we've got this movement in place framework that says where the traffic should be, why aren't we forcing the traffic to be there? Why are we still turning a blind eye to it, coming through the neighbourhoods where we want to play cricket, where we want to be, you know, out connecting with our communities and having street parties. And keep the, keeping the kids safe, keeping, keeping the, the wildlife safe. safe. Yeah, exactly. Just last week we talked about the Ramsar wetland and when I went to go photograph the building myself, there was a, a dead swan on Edith Bell Road. Oh, really? And you can't help but think how there's just no wildlife corridors even available. But I was just about to ask about what exciting projects you have coming up. So that that school street is one of them. Yeah, that's that's not 
I'm not doing that professionally. I'm doing that as someone who just knows what they're doing. Um, but it's a private little thing. That as I'm, an advocacy know, trying, piece. Yeah, as an advocacy piece, which hopefully I'll, you know, I've got some. I'll use my skills and contacts to at least get a serious conversation going about that. Um, but some ex- projects are exciting me. Well, you know, the the pop up bike lanes have kind of that program's kind of shutting down now. But there's a couple of them that are looking to maybe go permanent. Um, so if that would be a huge win. Uh, especially the one on Heidelberg Road, if it if it happens, I don't know if it's going to, but um, if that comes into the into the pipeline, and you know, I'd, I'd be looking at designs for that, um, then that would be a really exciting kind of um, thing for me. And also, I've been speaking to a couple of regional towns recently. It was about in relation to the Commonwealth Games, which isn't happening now, but still, they're really keen about the modal filters. And if you look at some of the regional towns, like say Ballarat, for example, they've got this intense grid system, really, really tight grid system. So to again go back to the modal filters put them on one street just one street you've just created a cycle corridor to your cbd and and a couple of these towns i've been talking to are actually really keen to try it and for a regional town that's a that's big like it's um, huge it's yeah. huge because you know they uh, they struggle to get a lot of this stuff over the line but the key message is what i'm saying when i'm putting this stuff in is guess what you're not going to remove any parking and 90 percent of the time that's the biggest political problem with what i do so if i'm just saying well just don't let anyone just don't close that intersection there there's that one intersection there's another 120 meters that way it's 120 meters that way it's hardly going to have any impact at all and you're not going to lose any parking and just try it and if you don't like it we'll move it in six months 120 um, meters that's really close yeah yeah it's actually 120 yeah, 120 meters there's a side road every 120 meters and this one section of um of one of the towns i was looking at um so they're keen to try it and if they do um you know, i'll help them and help them with their engagement it'll be the live consultation i spoke about so it won't just be like we're doing this and we'll building it it'll be a couple of plant pots in the middle of the street so really kind of small infrastructure stuff but huge benefits if they get it right and if they get if they do it somewhere near a school as well it's just gonna yeah i think once people see it they'll, they'll just think why are we doing this everywhere and you know it'll start to snowball but i can't believe i'm still an optimist after five years of being beaten down since i moved here but but i, I think I, you've but got I to am, be. but i am i think you've got to be in our profession and we have so many, so much talent, so many ideas, so many people locally who do this, such as yourself, who are really good at what they do. And we don't need Yarn Gell to tell us to take the cars off Swanson Street. Yeah. You know, that, that's what gets me. We have enough Australian ideas and Australian ingenuity, innovation here with local talent and people championing um, without having to get foreign expertise for it to somehow be credible. Yeah, it's just, but it's got to come from the top, though, hasn't it? It's got to go. It's got to go all the way up to you know state government level and Dan Andrews, etc. They've got to they've got to come out and say, yeah, we want to do this. We understand the benefits of it, and we're going to push for this. And that's kind of what happened back in London. And it feels like at the moment it's more bubbling at my level, you know, local council officer level, state government, this, the department transport and planning. You know, they get some stick, but they've got some wonderful people in there who are really progressive. And you know, but it's going even above them trying to get some of this stuff in. So there's a there's a bit of a block somewhere. Uh, we're not sure exactly where it is, but uh, we'll keep pushing until until it makes it really hard for people to you know say no anymore. Absolutely, and hopefully these live demonstrations yeah also kick off. I recently heard in the press that they're considering something similar for um uh, in Brunswick. Yeah, well, Mary Beck have done a lot. They've done a lot of these school streets as a lady called Zoe McMasters who was at Sustrans um, over in the UK, and she came over. I was actually a bit annoyed because when she came over and I met her for a coffee and she got she got her mall and council as it was to put one of these in. And I'd been trying for two or three years to get a client to do it and she came in and did one within like three months. <laughs> I was a bit annoyed she stole my thunder. Um, but uh, she's great. She's really good. She's been really good. Really good addition to the council over there. Maybe touch base and find out what her methodology was oh, on no, that I was, one. I was chatting to her just the other day. Yeah, I was asking her for <laughs> help me get my ducks in a, in a row for this one that I want to do. So she gave me some good advice. I've got our fingers crossed for you. Thanks. What are some surprising outcomes that some of your projects in the past have delivered? Um, I've mentioned Heidelberg Road a couple of times, but I'm going to mention it again because that was quite surprising, only because when we were putting a pop-up bike lane there, and this is a pretty hostile, polluted road, no one was cycling there, and it's kind of near quite a few of the creek trails, like the Merry Creek Trail, etc., um, so you'd see people at a weekend would be just on the footpath and there was some skinny bits of shared path, but there wasn't much going on. And then since it's gone in, it's, um, not just the numbers of people that have come, 
but it's there's more people using it commuting than there was there is on a weekend now but it's more kind of the uh, the people that are using it like women cycling which is a really you know really hard to get a lot of women cycling and that's doubled um since it went in and there's a kindergarten down there and people are cycling with cargo bikes taking the kids to the kinder on this 60k hostile road that we've just taken some lane space so it, it was surprising i didn't expect that i thought you know it'd be great for the road bikers you know the people that you see on beach road it'd be great for them they've got all this space but it's the diversity of people cycling which is amazing and it just just shows the you know the, the potential for something like that and a lot of a lot of it, and where it's great is because a lot of the work the work i do people um clients might say okay we need to get some cycle counts to see what the numbers are or some you know walking counts and that's kind of what they're basing their business case on existing numbers and it's, it's a classic case of designing trying to design for what you've got not for what you want yeah really and, retrospective uh, yeah, thinking it's a really big problem but now now there's a kind of more of like a vision and validate approach which is better than this old predict and provide approach and um that's a lot better people are starting to come around to they will come. The building, they will come, which gets mocked, but it's true. It, it will happen. Um, but it's not going to happen if you put one thing and then just leave it. Heidelberg Road, as great as it is, some of the connections into it are, are pretty weak. So, But that puts a lot of pressure on, you know, Darabin, Yarra Council to their, do their bit and, and feed into it. So hopefully we all kind of, you know, push each other strive, to strive for better. Um, but that's been that's been a really good one for me. And it's just, it just warms my heart, like seeing kids on bikes anywhere, um, you know, people taking the kids to school on bikes on the road, not on the footpath and more space for people walking. So therefore you get more people walking. And feeling safe and confident to do yeah, all that yeah, exactly. as well. Yeah, definitely. That in a way becomes a placemaking activity and you're really interested in placemaking. Can you tell me a bit more about some of the, your projects um, in that space that you've done and how they also tie into this infrastructure approach? Yeah, sure. Um, so in, I mean, since I've been over here, I've worked on the the pilot program for the 20 Minute Neighbourhoods program um, that was run by DELP at the time. And that was over in uh, Maroon Dirt and Sunshine was a couple of the clients we were doing that for. And it was really just looking at these kind of activity centres and just saying, well, what can we do to improve them? And we did some pretty ambitious stuff in Maroondah, which hasn't been built yet, but they have because they, they were struggling to get community buy-in. But they have been testing it. And as part of that testing was taking away some of this car park that was there and having like movie nights and music nights and theme nights and stuff like that. And it became, you know, really successful. So they've shown the local traders, et cetera, what's possible um you know what kind of benefit that kind of thing can bring to get them over the line to kind of do something a bit more permanent it's, you know they're, they're working on it they're hopeful uh, but they're, so that was classic resistance to the car parking yeah it wasn't even the car parking so basically what it is it's hard to describe on the radio but um so there's it's there's a sl- there's kind of a slip lane that goes down the out the front of the shops with a big car park on the other side we weren't even going to touch the car park we were just going to close the slip lane and make it into a plaza but this slip lane is less than, I don't know, about 70 metres from the intersection. But people will turn left and cut down through the slip lane and drive straight through to bypass the intersection. So it's a no-brainer um, from that side. But then, as much as this car park is really big, because there's parking outside the shops as well, people will pull over, stop there, grab a bacon buddy and off they go. But they could just go and park in this huge car park and walk 40 metres to get their bacon buddy. So there's this fear of the the few spaces we're going to go outside the front of the shops, but we're going to keep the huge car park. But we were just going to make this into like a, a plaza and a placemaking thing with different events and stuff. So they've done the plaza the thing, but they did it in the car park instead. And now it's just transferring it into the into the slip lane, um, which yeah, well, could happen. We'll, we'll see. So that was that's a really good one. And then in sunshine as well, um, a lot of stuff where and it's look, I'm not a huge. I don't do like huge big public kind of malls or anything like that. My stuff's kind of what I see as big wins, widening footpaths by two metres, getting some extra benches in, just getting some benches in, even on a residential place, you know, putting put in benches for people to go and have a sit down and a conversation and enable them to go for a walk rather than being housebound or doing that round to an activity centre, putting cycle parking in, but step-free cycle parking so anybody can, you know, if you've got a disability and you ride a bike, you can still go and... Or a heavy yeah, e-bike yeah, or exactly. a cargo bike with your kids. Yeah. Like if, if anyone is like listening to this, I challenge you to find some step-free cycle parking when you're walking around. Um, it's amazing how much cycle parking you see and you think, oh, that's great. 
but there's no like drop curves to get onto it in the first place unless you walk up to an intersection. And that's actually the easiest thing in the world to fix and it's very important, but we ignore it. Um, so look, little things like that is what I, I, I get excited about bringing, even putting a water bubbler on a street. Just just, just put a water on. The city of Melbourne's really good. They actually have a map. You can go online and it'll tell you where all the water bubblers are in the CBD, which is which is really good and really useful. Um, so yeah, so on the you know, on the sunshine stuff, we were looking at a, a similar kind of thing, just widening footpaths, taking out a little bit of a chemist car park, um, putting some more planting in, and they've done like a temporary activation where, go back to the beginning of this conversation, they painted the road in all bright fancy colours and stuff, but this was more the road, it wasn't really a crossing, so it did look pretty cool, or it was an eyesore, depending on which lens you're looking for, I thought it was kind of kind of funky. And they had a couple of street party type things going on, I think. So they're looking to do something permanent down the line there and just narrow the street and really make it, it a bit like the boulevard you were talking about earlier. Kind of tight lanes, a big central boulevard with you know nice trees and stuff like that and just slowing the space down through design and trying to discourage you know cars from using it. How much more lovely is that? Yeah, I know. You talk a bit about street hierarchy. Can you explain that term for the listeners? Yeah, um, I mean, for me, I'm always putting you know, people walking, cycling, public transport first. Um, there is the framework movement in place, which will categorise all sorts of streets and it will tell them what their primary focus <laughs> should be. Um, and, you know, it's not always going to be walking and cycling. There's obviously freight corridors that need to be done. Um, but that's there really to look at the street, look at the function of a street, look at the land use of a street, look at the destinations on a street, um, look at the people who use the street and prioritise you know, what should be the most important thing here. It's really good for when you're doing things like corridor studies where there is going to be a lot of movement, a lot of freight corridors, that sort of thing, or big movement corridors or big bus routes. But quite often as you get into a more dense environment, a CBD environment is where I start to just struggle, lose a little bit of faith because it just asks questions that are really hard to resolve like oh yeah we need bikes we need trams we need buses we've got to make sure the taxis can get down there and deliveries as well what do you do so it's uh, i'm a big believer that you should never have more than three modes including walking in the street so you know trams bikes walking cars trams walking bikes cars walking that you know just just use three buses bikes walking something like that um obviously that's uh, quite naive to think that can happen in a lot of places but why not why can't it happen it's all a decision. Um, That's exactly yeah, it. Yeah. I think people feel sometimes that it happens organically or it's just it is what it is. But everything in our public realm is actually a decision. It's yeah. a design exercise and someone decided that it's going to be that way one day and someone also has the power to change it. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. But, you know, as far as the hierarchy goes, it's just doing the right thing, having the right – the street – being adequate for the people who need to use it so you know we've got a thing in um in australia and in the uk where a lot of our footpaths are maybe 1.5 meters wide and that's a default and that'll come out of a lot of precinct structure plans etc and it's historical why why is it 1.5 meters wide like if people are going to walk there why not make it comfortable that i can walk down the street with a kid on one hand and on the a kid on the other hand there's a story um True story. Um, last year, I was walking my kid to school and we saw another mum who we know walking the other way. And she's like, oh, hello, how are you doing? Great, good. And I was walking down with Harrison to school. And so she stepped onto the verge and stood in some dog muck. Oh. And um, I was just saying to her, yeah, but this is why I do what I do. Because <laughs> you've just studied some dog muck. And I was just like, it was quite funny at the time. But um, I was like, yeah, because the footpaths are so narrow. So why? If, and why, why are we doing that? Why are we... Um, you know, why are we not putting mid-block crossings everywhere? Why are we making it hard for people to cross the road? Why are we going to intersections? Like, it's just, if, if they're in a CBD environment, make it that people walking can go wherever they want to go and they can get priority. And, you know, it's a slow-speed environment, even if you end up doing some sort of shared space. If you're on a, a, a collector road, like, I don't know, a Fowler Street in Chelsea or something, fine, you know, make sure there's trees, make sure there's shade for people, but just have a decent width of footpath. And you can still have your track. You don't need 3.5 metre traffic lanes. You go down to 2.8, you can go down to 3 metres. And a lot of that comes from the guidance that we have. And a lot of the guidance is basically written for like an urban arterial. And a lot of local council traffic engineers will use the guidance and they will design urban arterial roads um, in in a place where it should never be an urban arterial. 
And there's nothing worse than a great episode. The worst example of that is when you look at a lot of side roads and look how big the radius is on the corner. It's like so, you know, like a 12 and a half metre truck can turn left and stay in the same lane. Like, heaven forbid, it crosses into the other lane when it's going into a residential street. There's a lot of that sort of stuff going in where that should be really, really tight. The crossing should, there should be curb extensions. So it's a very short crossing for people crossing the road. And yeah, if you turn into a, a street as a waste truck once a week and you cross the centre line, who cares? You know, but the benefit to everyone else is huge. Um, so a hierarchy, it's just, yeah, it's just doing the right thing for the people who are going to use the street. I don't think you have to say this is the most important, number one, then you must do this. It's just, what's the function of the street? Let's react to it. If you could have one thing on the top of your wish list across our sort of local area here in the city of Kingston, what would you pick? Modal filters every day of the week. It's just, it's just so easy uh, and not so many speed dumps. I, I find that um, there's a bit of a default solution in traffic management is to put more speed humps in um, where I think there's quite a bit of rat running in the areas of Kingston I've been in and, and I think just picking a couple of streets, do my street, yeah, it'll inconvenience me a little bit coming home but that's okay, I'll, I'll live with that, that's alright. Um, but yeah, I just think test, just having, just testing these kind of things, testing some other treatments, testing road closures, um, but allowing people to cycle and walk, use mobility scooters, etc. Um, just it's so easy to do. So that's something I'd love to see more of. And just lower speeds. Like I'm a, I'm a big believer, you know, we on our residential streets, we shouldn't be have more than um, 30k an hour as our speed on our street. And just doing that, I mean, that's you go to the Netherlands, and we all talk about the Netherlands, especially in my world as a cycle designer. But yeah, they have infrastructure, but they also have a hell of a lot of places that don't have any infrastructure. They just have a fairly narrow residential street that's the 30k an hour speed limit. And that's it. Oh. Um, and that, that creates a cycling environment. You know, it's uh, The respect is there, the culture's there. You can't, you can't just do it overnight. But we're, we, 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 we have default streets. Sherwood Avenue, where I live, is a 50k an hour road, and that's just nuts. It's a residential street. And it's even had some little kind of chicanes and stuff designed into it, some rain gardens, and it's still a 50k an hour road. Um, Station Street, there's um, you know four or five zebra crossings, like raised wombat crossings on there, but it's still a 60k an hour road. Like, I don't think you should be putting zebras on a 60k an hour road. Now, admittedly, you know, I think that was just done as part of the level crossings, and council have actually released something recently saying they want to lower it to 50. But if we've got the Nepean Highway, and that's your movement corridor, why is why do we want them kind of streets to be 50 in a k an hour? It could be less. That one might be a little bit ambitious because it is still a pretty strong movement corridor. But yeah, if you just look at the speed limit seriously, I think there's going to be a tipping point in New South Wales. They've got um, Better Streets, which is a big advocacy group, which has started over there. Um, and I kind of get involved in that a little bit. And they're having the right chats with the ministers. And I think there's going to be a, a big push for 30k in residential streets coming out of there soon. I know that a lot of people probably listen to this and instantly hate me for suggesting our road should be 30k an hour. But I think on a residential street, it's an easy way just to improve things. Again, get people, more people walking, cycling. It's for the safety of their it. own children, really, yeah, that yeah, suggestion. Especially when everyone's driving around in massive cars now. Yeah. And it, it's not to not to, not to victimise cars or point fingers at cars. It's about just making sure the community's okay. I really love your Dutch example. For anyone who's travelled there, it's, it's a wonderful place. But the very common rebuttal is, oh, they're a different culture. They're a different culture. It's like, well, my feeling on that is... We're all people, we're all part of the human race and all people should really care about other people. That's yeah. that's what it comes down to for me. What? Do you, how does that sit with you, this, yeah, this rebuttal that, oh, we're, they're a different culture and it works for them? So when I was in London, I reckon this was around 2014, um, I remember putting in a like a 1.2 metre painted bike lane on the approach to an intersection and kind of seeing that as a win. Um, in a couple of places and the argument would be ah even though sex highways were there then but we're still you know we're not we're not we're not Denmark we're not Amsterdam you know we're not the Netherlands and I was like yeah okay and then I move here and people are saying the same thing but they've added London to that list it's like we're not London so London was saying it about you know Amsterdam etc and now people are saying it about London or people saying we're not Paris so that list is now getting longer of the people that we're not. And now and then you find now it's even coming down to a more local level. You've got, you know, Yarra, which has got some pretty progressive councillors and they've got a few modal filters and some bike lanes and they've tried some new stuff. Uh, you know, we're not Yarra. You know, this is Chelsea. We're not Yarra. 
Um, so when when they when they can't argue anymore about we're not you know other countries we're like well here's ten more we're not here's Bogota you throw that one in as well. Um, Berlin, what about them? Yeah, let's add them to the mix. And now, so now they started saying, well, okay, well now we'll get locals here. We're not, you know, we're not Port Philip, we're not Yarrow, we're not this, we're not that. And it's just that natural trying to protect what's what you've got and trying to protect change. But it is an opportunity to design who we are and design the world we want to have and and share with each other. But where is the ambition? I I do believe in like a local view and a local vision and a local pride with without you know clutching for the grandeur and the lifting the design of Europe on a pedestal, for example. I, I think as um, a, a colonial country, we did that for a very long time, particularly in the, in the 20th century. But we have to have some, some ambition for what we're chasing. Yeah, we do. But we, all, but we also have to realise that, and I think there's a bit of a, and there's, there's a lot of people get referred to as antis or people start talking bad about people because they're anti, you know, cycle infrastructure or anti kind of modal filters and this kind of thing. They're just human beings themselves, good people, you know, and quite often we it becomes an us and them mentality. And I think we've got to be really careful that we don't do that. Not everybody on X Street is a whatever because they've signed a petition saying they don't want a bike lane outside their house. They just don't see the benefit to them. Yeah. And and a lot of that might become a be because of the historical way we've designed things. Like with cycle infrastructure in particular, we only ever designed to cater the fast, confident people cycling. So when people talk about you know the Lycra, Clad, etc., um, that you know that's one. That is our existing rider base, but that's all we've really ever designed for. So that's what people see the profile of a cyclist. Where I said there is no such thing as a cyclist. It's you might be out on your sports bike tearing down Beach Road, and then you know, the next day you pop into Woolworths with your kid on the footpath, or you're taking your kid to school, and there's lots of different things. You might be doing, you're just a person who's choosing a mode of transport in a different way for exercise, for leisure, you know, just for, for necessity, for chores, whatever it might be. Uh, but then we've got this us and them mentality. And that's, that's, the big, that's the thing we really have to break down. It's the biggest danger in all public life, really. Yeah, no, for, definitely. For, for any hope for the city. But that really, that vision, that idea really gives me pause that you say that we actually only design bike lanes for strong, confident cyclists, and that's the sort of until I got here, <laughs> until you arrived, James. The the pl- sort of planning um, headspace or dogma that was rolled out, I had no idea. And it, the second I think about it, it makes absolutely perfect sense. But that's really scary, and it, that's true for a lot of things that we design in the city. It's designed for able-bodied people. And it's more often than not designed by men for men, including like climatic temperatures or the heights of things, the sizes and the spaces of things. And it's really important to remember like who is designing cities, who is designing places and who, who are we designing them for? Oh, without doubt. And we're, we're already outdating ourselves. So we're, we're patting ourselves on the back when we put a protected bike lane in. You know, rightly so. It's good. It's, it's, it's good progress. Um, but we're now getting into an environment where there's going to be, you know, e-cargo bikes, e-scooters, faster mobility devices in these bike lanes. So my wife isn't a very confident, she's not very confident on a bike. That's going to become a barrier to her cycling if she's in a 1.82 meter protected lane and all these fast devices. It's just turning one highway into another highway trying to get past her. So even the protected bike lane isn't really, isn't really equal. Um, it's going to be outdated, and you know one of the one of the barriers to like you know women cycling is especially is the fear of falling into traffic and having that protected space and just feeling that low level of stress. But that low level of stress is going to disappear soon because we're going to get we could get oversaturated with with faster mobility devices. So we were where we were talking celebrating two meter protected bike lanes. Now we're looking at maybe we need three. Maybe we need two bike lanes within a bike lane. Maybe we don't need a bike lane. We just close the road except for bikes and cars. The modal filter might be the way to go. You take the whole street. So you're not mixing with cars, but you're not penned into a, a protected bike lane. And I don't know the answer. Everything's site-specific, as you say. You know, and you've got to factor in the land use and you know what you need to achieve there, especially when it comes to a CBD environment. But, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting how quickly things are moving and how quickly new things are coming online that we have to think about make it adaptable so we can prepare for that future like you say that protected bike lane actually pen, pens you in a little bit and yeah. you spend all this money on concrete curbs 
without the opportunity to expand a bit further if you need to because paint is cheap. Yeah, it is cheap. Um, and also, yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's quite often it's just put in because you want to retain the parking on the, on the curbside, etc., which is um, another tricky thing, you know, to manage. But yeah, it's, look, it's, it's changing all the time and I've done, I'm doing a lot of designs for certain clients at the moment and I'm optioneering and I'm pushing parking out and putting bike lanes on the curbs. I'm getting rid of parking. I'm putting motor filters in. I'm just throwing all these options. At least it's, it's well thought through and you can go to the community and go, right, we've, we've looked at everything here. These would be the impacts to do this. This would be the impacts to do this. And then we do some assessments and, you know, we, and we talk about things like, you know, like gender equity and all that kind of stuff and, um, making sure it's as inclusive as possible. Spatial justice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all that stuff and then all you can do is you know go to the councillors and show you've done your homework and hopefully you know they've they'll get on board you know and you can show the benefits but yeah it's it's an interesting space and who's leading the innovation across australia at the moment is is there any sort of cities that get your gold ticks oh well i um i mean city of melbourne have done some really good stuff i mean it might be you know it might look cheap and cheerful the bolt down separators but they've got some good progressive people there and they've really done a great job reallocating road space but managing the parking that, that was needed or the loading that was needed. I think they've done phenomenal and they're really progressive and even their, their little streets, we did some work for them recently evaluating the little streets program and it basically asked the question, how are our little streets performing as a shared space? And the surprising, you know, the answer probably not too unsurprising would be, well, they're not really. It's more of a slow speed environment because cars are still... Little um, streets as in the laneways. Yeah, yeah, like Flinders Lane, etc. Yeah. You know, it's not so it's not not what you call a shared space, but that's obviously you know, the the intent kind of thing. But they are, you know, and they're looking at uh, future streets program and how can that all change and how can they make the C- CBD more people friendly? And I think they're excellent. I think they're really good. Um, I think City of Sydney, like Fiona Campbell, who heads the cycle infrastructure team up there, you know, they're doing some wonderful things um, and just just smart, just smart how they go about it. Um, so them the two that stand out. I think up in WA, there's a program called the Safe Active Streets program, um, which is just it's just really creating slow streets, um, slow streets, occasional kind of friendly kind of speed humps, the odd modal filter, um, redesigning the streets so it's kind of you know the the parking's kind of in inset bays, but the the streets are a bit narrower, and they're just picking the right places to do it, not big rat runs and stuff, but they're just setting good precedents, and it's just kind of quite a pleasant place to cycle around. Um, South Australia, we might as well just bypass that one because I don't think they're doing a great deal from what from what I hear. Um, anyway, and in Queensland, you know, they've from what I what I see, I see the great pictures over there that the cycling bridges and the walking and cycling bridges that they have kind of going on there. I'm not sure what the connections are like from what I hear. They could be better, but you know, they do they do stuff pretty well as far as um, getting big long cycle routes in. I think it's more at a local level where they maybe need some more work, but. Yeah, look, City of Melbourne, City of Sydney, kind of standing out for me for sure. And then you get some surprising people in local government that just pop up in different governments that are, are doing some really good stuff and are really progressive. Um, but quite often, even in the local government, there's an internal battle that goes on. Um, I find with my job, the planners and the urban designers who commission me and they kind of you know love the work my team does is great, but then they have to sell the ideas to their own internal engineers and often that's where it can get a bit sticky. Get it through their powers that be. Yeah, so it's uh, there's always a bit of a bit of a. I like I like starting arguments within councils, <laughs> internal <laughs> arguments. But yeah, that's what I got to do. But th- that's it. Like you need discussion, you need discourse, you need you need questions. If everyone in the room agrees, there's probably something wrong. You've probably not reached the right the right oh, solution at that moment. Right? Definitely, and it's hard being a consultant. Like I. I'll walk away from a job if I don't think the outcome, if I get a quote and the outcome isn't what I think is a good outcome and I know they're just trying to tick a box, like I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to bother. Whereas I probably should take the money because someone's going to take it, yeah, and then try and, but sometimes you're just like, no, it's you just. Not. Poison chalice. Yeah, yeah, just don't bother. I don't want my name associated with that stuff. And I've designed rubbish, don't get me wrong. Like where I've been forced with one hand behind my back to do something that I didn't want to do, but I've only done it when I've known there's a greater good. Like, if I don't do this, I won't get to do this. Um, like, I can design something great here. Yeah, I might have to do this on the side, which I don't agree with, but I'm going to do this better than anyone else, the good stuff. So, yeah, let's let's take it on. Um, so, let's see, it's tricky being a consultant and, you know, trying to be an advocate at the same time because I can't, you know, go rubbishing the stuff that my clients want to do. Um, 
but I'm just, yeah, I'm just trying to help them make the best decisions and put the best case forward for them to get this stuff over the line. And taking a telescopic view to support them along that process. Yeah, yeah, I try to. I will add a comment on Brisbane that they have the added privilege of ferries oh, yeah. that work really well in both paid and, and free ferries. I haven't actually been there yet. I've only seen oh, the, it's uh, so the, fun. The, the images. Yeah, but we went up for a long weekend and the ferries zoom you around much faster than you can possibly walk Okay. or ride. And I hear that the earliest waking city in the world as well because of how early the sun rises and everyone is running and everyone is cycling and you, you forget they're actually inland. You're right. up, they're up a river. They're not near the coast. Well, I've got a five and a seven-year-old. I think I've got the earliest house um, in, the, <laughs> in the world, never mind the earliest city. But. And is everyone a keen cyclist? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, no, my wife's kind of... When our car was kind of in the garage for about three months, uh, I got her a bike and she was on it a lot. And now she's just fallen back into the habit of driving down to the shops and stuff again. And she wants to use the bike again, but it's more just the habit. It's like you're just so used oh, to it. Totally, totally. I studied on exchange and I lived for half a year in Belgium, in, in Ghent. Okay. And it's amazing how quickly we adapted to life on the bike, shopping on the bike, going out on the town on the bike and yeah, minus yeah. one degrees all dressed up. You, you just, um, you switch on either when you have no other choice or the the city and the urban realm really supports that. What about you? Are you a keen cyclist and... Yeah, look, I when I was in um, living in Brighton East, I'd like I'd ride my bike to work, fifteen kilometres there, fifteen kilometres back every day. Now I'm in Chelsea, hardly ever ride my bike to work. So I leave a, I leave an e-bike in the office, and I have another bike at home, a normal bike at home. So when I'm just popping down to the shops, I'll use my bike. But I'll be honest, locally, I probably drive more than I cycle. But when I'm in the office, I always use my bike to take all my site visits. One, because it's quicker, but two, because the projects I work on, I like to put like a GoPro on. I like to ride the route I'm going to design just to get that perspective that I can look back on as a rider and that I can show to clients. and Collect the data. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, and just, just get it. So I've got that live footage of a before and after. And when I'm talking to them about stuff, I can pause the video and say, look, we've got this issue here and it might be buildability, it might be a sight line issue, that kind of thing. But I can, it's real because it's it's me on the bike riding the route that we're going to design for. You um, can say, hang on, hang on, I've just been here. Let's let's rewind yeah, exactly. that video. Yeah, so I like having the bike there. And I like I like to ride around the city quite a bit when I'm doing my site visits. Excellent. What got you into transport planning and active transport as as your niche of choice? Um, well, when I was working in uh, back at Transport for London, like a, for quite a while, I mean, my job was just you know, road design keeping traffic moving, which was TFL, Transport for London's kind of slogan at the time, keep London moving. So I was there, you know, helping trying to get cars through intersections and stuff like that, and it wasn't particularly inspiring. Then I got the opportunity to work on a couple of bike projects, um, and I just immediately was like, yeah, this is just the right thing to do. Um, and then I got a really good one in in London, um, one of the first kind of big bus priority, um, cycle priority kind of lanes with with bus stop bypasses, like three big bus stop bypasses, and I got them designed in, and it was kind of seen as a little bit of a benchmark design at the time by the commissioner saying, yeah, this is how we should be doing these, and and then I was just like, yeah, this is this is what I want to be doing, and then when I came over to Australia, I I kind of just realised pretty quickly that I probably knew a little bit more than most of the people around me about design and planning in this space. Um, and I'd had some good mentors, you know, back in London that I respected and, and kind of followed and did some courses, et cetera, cycle design courses. Um, and then I got a VN, so I kind of like was just given any work that came in that was that related kind of, but we weren't very strong in that space, our company at the time. So I've kind of helped build that part of the business up. And for the first six months, I didn't have any work. No one knew me. We didn't really do anything. So I was just doing presentations to state government, to local government, just doing the houses and then eventually started trickling in. And then state government came knocking on the door and you're like, that guy I presented and then we yeah, gave us some quotes and we yeah we, we want some work and and now we're up and running and now we've, we're really really strong in that space and we're probably we've got this like cycle design of excellence at, at Stantec and I think we're probably the, the probably the the best in Victoria for kind of that kind of work but it didn't come easily but um the passion kind of grew in London and I'd say even even since I've landed here it's it's accelerated you know tenfold since I got in because I've got more into it I've had more opportunities to work solely on that where in London I do some cycle design on a super highway or something, and then on the side I'd be working on a roundabout, a multi-lane roundabout. So it's kind of a, you know a mixed bag. That's fantastic! But huge congratulations on that growth as well, and the, the ideas that you're able to put out there and the change you're able to affect. 
Yeah, it's a, it's that's people always say you're so lucky to do what you do that you, you know it's something you're so passionate about. But I always kind of say I am, but I get the door slammed in my face an awful lot. So it's not it's not everything it's cracked up to be. You know, it's not like I'm just building stuff left, right, and centre. Like I have a lot of pushback on what I'm trying to do. So I am lucky, um, and I'm in a great position in the company. But um, yeah, I still want more. You know, I still want to see. I still want more results. I still want to leave a legacy on the on the street and for the junior engineers that are coming up behind me to kind of, you know, when I retire in fifteen years or whatever, that they're in a really strong position to come and you know keep driving, because electric cars are not the answer. No, they're still they're still big. Yeah. They still affect people's safety. Yeah, exactly. That's that's really excellent. I also am reflecting on how people think London is. is old, well-developed, big, huge city that's fixed and rigid and yet you're able to create so much change, so much possibility, so much opportunity. So the existing condition should never be a limit for us and the change that we're able to affect in our cities and in the public realm. Yeah, no, definitely. And if I don't know if you're familiar with the Mini Holland program over there. I think that's a great example no, same of that. So Mini Holland is... Um, Basically, it was there was the the government had I think they had like thirty million each and said three councils can everyone can bid for the money and we'll give it to three councils and they gave it to Enfield to Waltham Forest and uh, I forget what the other one was, but um, basically the Mini Holland is primarily associated with with Waltham Forest and it was to develop better cycling infrastructure originally, and what they did it was just a lot of stuff like um, modal filters, protected bike lanes, a lot of continuous footpaths, just raising the you know the side road. Um, but really making it difficult to drive through the neighbourhood, that kind of Dutch model of it's hard to drive through a neighbourhood, you kind of have to go around, um, but just providing lots of little pocket parks, loads of modal filters, kind of school street environment, slow speeds, hard to making it hard to drive, because that's actually one of the biggest things here. It's not the lack of infrastructure. We make it so easy to drive. Um, and it was a great success. And there was huge opposition to it. There was people who were marching down Walthamstow High Street, carrying a coffin, and it said death to the high street. And there was loads of people protesting against them. I think most of them were taxi drivers, but it was a huge, you know, it was a lot of... And they held firm, which is good, because a lot of times people just fold under that kind of pressure. They held firm. And uh, even though it was lauded this kind of psych- big cycling scheme, what's ended up in all the studies is that more people are walking, a lot more. There's more walking going on than there was cycling. So walking got a huge uplift. And there was a study, I think it was about three years ago, that they're, uh, they helped the life expectancy for people who live there has now gone up by three months as well in like the first couple of years well there you go more people being active and stuff and it's just been this really great scheme and if you just google like mini holland you can just see all these great images of people going through little cut throughs that used to be roads and now they're just little pocket parks you can nip through and here and there with benches and flowers and places to sit and congregate and just have a chat with a couple of neighbors or drop the kids off at school and have a coffee with someone and which is really important you know that's like the only social interaction some people might get in a day is that school drop-off school pickup so if you can facilitate and put a place there where people can do it and 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 they're relaxed and they get to chat to people that who knows what benefits that's having to your you know your mental health and how that multiplies that butterfly effect through our communities yeah definitely we'll pop some photos up of all of these examples also in our instagram post that we do to follow up after each show and i think that's a perfect lead into my last question james is what gives you hope what gives me hope? Um, I think the change I'm probably seeing in Victoria at a, a state government level gives me a lot of hope. When I got here, I felt it was very car orientated, very traffic centric still, and a lot of my words would fall on deaf ears. But um, I've got to know quite a lot of people, and there's, there's teams that have been set up within state government, like an active travel team. And there's a new generation of people coming through and some of the old guard have kind of either moved on, retired, etc. And there's some really progressive people in there. And now it's not just some consultant from England saying, you should do this. Who's this guy coming over and telling us what to do with our streets? Now there's people supporting what I'm saying at a local government, at a state government level. And there's just more pressure going up. And I think like the iPad, like Coca-Cola, there's a tipping point at some point and I do think that tipping point will come because I think we have no choice with our roads and the way we design our streets you know you can let it get busier bring autonomous vehicles and in and have tail-to-tail cars just going around 
it's you know, it's not going to be good, is it? Um, so yeah, we've got no choice. It's going to get busier. It's going to get more polluted. We have to act. And they all say that this climate, everyone's got this climate action plan, and not many people are kind of uh, are really doing anything about it. But what I'm seeing now in local and state government is there's more and more progressive people who are pushing hard, and they're asking their bosses why, you know, why why are you saying no? And and I think we're getting some momentum. And um, yeah, and I think eventually it's gonna it's gonna tip over. And then once the the real decision makers see the benefits, um, they're going to get behind it because it's going to be things you can do cheap. You can put massive new road corridors in if you want to and spend billions and billions and billions. Or you can put that money into local transport improvements, accessibility, placemaking, social housing, that kind of stuff. And you'll see a lot more return for your buck, I reckon. We'll have an incredible city, an incredible life. Yeah, and we exactly. won't know ourselves. Yeah, well, probably be long retired. I <laughs> mean... Yeah, and we'll able see. to reap the benefits. Yeah, yeah, and everyone will be like, no one will know. No one will know about my small little part in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, we have this record. We have yeah, this conversation. Yeah, we, we, we got it recorded. It's all me. It was all me. <laughs> Tell your grandkids. Yeah. <laughs> and Radio Karen puts all their shows up across any of your favorite podcast platforms. So you can catch up on, on this show at any time. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, okay. James. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonarong Country. You can replay the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along? Won't you please take me along for a ride? This is Dave Crosby. Jim McGlynn. And it's very good to be on your show, man.